Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Last Week in Brexit is brought to you by Pearson Solicitors and Financial Advisors, helping businesses and families for over 100 years. And Greater Manchester Chambers of Commerce. Connect, communicate, create. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast for Remainers and Brexiteers alike. Join me, Jonathan Beardmore, every week alongside Alex Davis and Christian Spence as we try and guide you through the choppy waters of Brexit. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast all about leaving the EU. Sorry for the delay in the podcast, but we've been away on a country retreat whilst we reconsider our positions. But we are back and I'm here with Christian Spence. Hello, Christian. Hello. And Alex Davis. Hello. Right, gents. Um, lots has been going on since we've been away. Uh, I think a good place to start is with Theresa May's event in Chequers. Now, Theresa May doesn't sound like the sort of individual that would go to Chequers much. And I know that um, Tony Blair absolutely loved going there. Um, are, you, are you confident that her change in tact is actually going to be able to bear any fruit? No. <laughs> Christian. Um, that's a great podcast, everyone. Come and join us next week for more. <laughs> um, I think it was Laura, Laura what, what's her name? Laura Kunzberg. Yeah, the so, woman that so, never stops working. Said what's going in there that if everyone walks out of this happy, it's a fudge yeah. and nothing's happened. But like, so but someone someone needs to walk out unhappy, and all the reporters said that everyone's happy and everyone's, everyone's agreed to everything. It. Yeah, because there's been no official kind of government statements on that this year. We do, what we do know is Theresa May is going to give her speech. Her next official speech on Friday of next week. That's diarised, that's confirmed, which will presumably bring all this together. But yeah, all the press reports are basically everyone's come out saying everyone's happy. Every, I think the phrase that Robert Pester used was every cabinet minister's got what they wanted. That's which, amazing. Which, which means there was a lot of cake on the table and nobody left hungry. That's. <laughs> well, I mean, so for someone to say, it's a fudge. That is actually a success. This is that is what politics is about. You couldn't have the whole Gove approach, and you couldn't have the whole, you know, um, Nicky Morgan approach. I think from the politics point of this, you're right, absolutely. So I mean, and I think probably, yeah, we've, we've not got much news reports. So I said nothing official on this yet. Politically, simply to have got all of them in a room, locked them down for eight hours, and come out where none of them have resigned, none of them have thrown their toys out of the ground, is a pretty impressive move forward. Yeah, politically. That's, there's at least some form of unification. The question is, what have they unified around? Because <laughs> if that unification is the customs position is now both in the e- is either in the EU customs union, in a customs union with the EU, or not in one, or our single market position is in or out but with close alignment, or out but with going on divergence, 
etc., then we still have all the problems we had before this meeting. Um, and that's the bit that I don't really understand. I guess that's why Alex's it's reaction was so damn it's pessimistic. More, it's, <laughs> it's just more kicking the can down the road, yeah. it feels like to me anyway. Um, and one of the terms that's come out of it is that they have agreed around ambitious managed divergence. Oh, that's easy to understand. So what's that then? Um, my, my impression of what's going to happen is basically that we're going to continue to fully align ourselves, but we want to have the ability to change that at some point in the future is, is basically what I think is going to happen. Um, so th- there is ob- obviously some parts of the cabinet are really going for the divergence and we need to set our own regs and standards. Um, other parts of the cabinet, you know, the Chancellor, for example, is going to be pushing hard on the fact that certain sectors, certain industries, car manufacturing is the one that everyone always brings up, mm-hmm. needs, to, needs to have their alignment maintained with the EU um, you know so supply chains don't break down and stuff like that so they've had to find a way to please both both of these camps and obviously this hasn't been translated into anything yet we've just heard some snippets of information but it seems like what they're going to do is commit to maintain regulatory alignment um, but then give us opportunity to look at certain sectors of the economy and see uh, if we might diverge in particular areas so it's kind of like will continue to be aligned but we want to have the option to look at the option of diverging almost I think do you agree? yeah no, I, th- I think no. <laughs> I think that this is I think as good a summary as we can do um, at this stage and actually I mean I understand why the UK government likes that as a position but it's, it's the bit we kind of keep coming back to occasionally is that's that's great that we may even have a united cabinet around that um, but the cabinet aren't the people we need to convince yeah it's it's the EU twenty seven. Well, and I think this is still where you know how do you, first of all how do you convert that into into a legal text? We're still seeing the the battle of you know we agreed the phase one sufficient progress. That's now being converted into black and white, and its conversion into legal text starts to really highlight the bits that were kicked down the road for mm. last time. You know, essentially we agreed to say whatever happens, the Northern Ireland border would not be a problem. We'll solve it. Well, legalistically, that means you stay in the customs of the single market. That is what will end up on the legal document. And all of a sudden, that kind of shines the light into that. Then from the EU, it's, it's actually how much does it want to do this? Now, you know, we know the EU is obstreperous. We know it's bureaucratic. We know it's like systems. And we know it overreaches itself. But there is a precedent for countries that have mostly aligned and little bits that drop out and that is the Switzerland agreement and that's the EEA mm. and so you're still inclined to think well, if the EU is going to say if you want a position where you can choose to not implement new bits of EU law and start to diverge then well Norway has that power mm. but then what but what is the treaty arrangement which all that's going to work do you seriously want do we expect the EU to go away and say we're happy to draft up an entirely new bespoke treaty but I mean that's that a job isn't it that kind of works like Norway but doesn't um, I read somewhere earlier today, Karen Bahu said one of the challenges for the EU in all this is they've got not only they've got to balance the the needs of the internal twenty seven um, and not you know they, they we know they're not going to dilute the single market as a concept they will you know the EU will die it will die on its bridge for that. Mm. Um, it's all an interesting one which we may have forgotten. It's also got to protect its EEA partners. Mm-hmm. So it needs to come up with something if if it looks like the UK might get a better and more flexible deal than the EEA states, then you bring in 
you, you start to put some interesting questions about EFTA. Yes. Um, now that I feel very confident in saying the EU does really not want to open that box. So this is an interesting point, okay? And this is what I think about. Do you remember it was the enterprise zones that Margaret Thatcher put in? Mm. And basically, all the enterprise zone did was show everyone else how the rest of the rest of the economy should have been around to start with. So, and that's sort of how I feel about the EU deal. Um, and the UK. I mean, if they give us such a great deal that everyone else wants one, well, why don't you just give everyone else that deal? Uh, because I am the global world works, <laughs> I'm afraid. Um, you know, as I said, we, we talked about this before, and it's it's slightly simplistic, but fundamentally, trade is, or what we do through trade facilitation agreements these days, and certainly post GATT and WTO, is you're trying to change the status quo. And the status quo is highly protectionist. Mm. Every country will read it is highly protectionist. The only reason for tariffs or the rest of it is protectionism in some form or other, be it environmental, economic, social, whatever. It's all protectionism. It's all about trying to bring those things down. And I think everyone, not everyone, lots of people in this debate are approaching the Brexit situation from considering that the status within the EU is normal and we're trying to work away from it. The, the global status is highly protectionist. Yeah. And right. the EU position and what it has developed is is unique. Nowhere else in the world has, has managed to build um, you know, a single economic zone in, in this way. And so unpicking it, and I think this is where you know, the, the, this concept of how you manage divergence is changing of rules over time in treaties is not a problem. It happens quite a lot. The CETA agreement has that built into it. It's kind of a baked agreement, CETA. Um, it won't. It doesn't automatically evolve over time in the way the EEA relationship works, um, and so you would expect CETA to come back to the table to be revised. What no one's ever done is set up a treaty system which automatically and over time makes trade harder. And that's <laughs> essentially what the UK government is asking for. It's just never been done. Yeah, and that makes sense actually. So you've gone from a very co- coherent, harmonised. Set, uh, circumstances we've got now and in the future it's going to get more and more difficult yeah how do you manage that yeah and that's a question that is almost certainly no, almost certainly solvable but no that's one has really, ever put their minds to it yet because, that's a really interesting way actually, of putting it when you think about it like that it's a really bonkers well, thing in on. many ways yeah. to do it. we're yeah. actually saying we are, we are setting out a plan to, to implement frictions in trade over the next 5 to 15 years so, right so that's, that is quite interesting on the face of it you know, it does sound bonkers, but of course that's only half half the point, it is. isn't it? Because the other side of that is it makes trade less. It makes there makes sorry, there's less friction on trade with the rest of the world, and there I think that's well, what I, they're looking for. I, I think your your a little way to the to the correct position uh, <laughs> is it opens up the potential yes. for lessening trade barriers with the rest. Of the world. Although it doesn't automatically do it. It doesn't automatically, and it is not guaranteed that you could do it. So that there's a caveat there. So we, I mean, everything in, everything in economics, everything in politics is trade-offs. You, we are sacrificing a known amount of loss, a relatively known amount of losses um, in terms of trade with the EU for an undecidable and unknowable potential amount of gains. Now, that's, that's the world of business. You know, you make your choices, you, you lay everything out on the table and you have a go. But... There is risk. Right, so we've done the done done the done the checkers bit, which is good because it seems to be both you two aren't 
as um, enthused as I am, particularly you, Alex. Mm. So can well, you it's be? Progress. It's, I mean, yeah, it's I'm sure progress, it'll be progress. But... We're not. We're not. We're not going to really understand what it what what was said until next Saturday. Is it? Yeah, next well, Friday. Next Friday. Theresa May's speech. Well, well, that's where it's going to go next. So there has been some preliminary speeches, and actually, I, I, I quite like any speech which uh, references the film Mad Max. Um, what were your views on um, on what was, what was said? Is there anything of substance that we need to pay attention to? I think there are a few interesting things that were mentioned in the David Davis speech. Just a few lines that he used, which indicated perhaps a. a a better understanding of how things work. So one of the lines that he said, I think, was along the lines of, the future of regulations and standards, the foundations of free trade, is increasingly is increasingly global. Oh. I think there's two things in there. Yeah. First of all, the admission that regulations and standards are the foundations of free trade, which is not something you would hear Jacob Rees-Mogg saying no. or John Redwood saying. That's, that's, that's nice to hear. Um, and second of all, the fact that he's acknowledged that these things are increasingly global is, is something else which we haven't really heard politicians talk about. Um, it goes back to some of the arguments around uh, the EEA after option, you know, when people say that Norway don't have a say over the rules, um, which isn't technically true because um, a lot of the rules which the EU imposes are actually stemmed from more global bodies like UNES or the ISO or Codex. Um, so these kind of global regu- regulation setters. Um, and the relationship goes both ways. So some things will be led by the EU and then will be picked up by these other bodies too. But the point that he's making that regulation is becoming an increasingly a, a global game rather than an EU one, um, I think is quite good to hear, actually. Um, I, I would agree. I think there's actually... I think that's one of the biggest shifts in speech from a government politician we've, we've yeah. had probably since this referendum process kicked off two and a half years ago that there wasn't particularly talk of tariffs mm. um, there was this talk because uh, he mentioned a few things in here around, about mutual recognition yeah. um, so there uh, wouldn't be a race to the bottom standards and yeah, inspection yeah. regimes which kind of gets the difference between CETA and TTIP kind of things um, in place so I think it's a big move forward the question of course is, is what does that mean and where does it go but I think I'm with Alex absolutely in terms of a change of tone that's really interesting see this is why I'm more confident than you guys regarding the regarding the checkers excursion I mean uh, David Davis does sound like he's changed his tone which I guess is encouraging because all the EU has been asking well it seems to be all they've been asking since day one is what do you want well we can tell them uh, I'm not sure we can. I'm not sure we're there yet. Um, and this is why, you know, it's, it, it's of the nature of policy people. Policy wants to be mostly depressed about the world of policy because that's, that's what we're here for. Mm. Our job is to challenge and tear it apart and find holes in it. Um, so, you know, I, I hope I was a bit more conciliatory earlier when I said actually the, the, the checkers um, outcome, I said actually politically is a really positive step forward. Mm. I'm not sure in terms of policy we've got any realistic movement because actually that only happens when this becomes a codified process which is at least vaguely and hopefully substantially acceptable to our negotiating partners because that's the bit that matters. Mm. Otherwise we could just rewind to Brexit means Brexit, deepen special relationship and everything sorted. Yeah. Um, Because in many ways, I suspect our our and the EU's preferred outcome is something that you could probably stick a label that says deep and special on. But you can't write a treaty. (laughs) Based on what actually is it? (laughs) How are you going to do it? 
Um, what are the global enforcement bodies you need to bring along with you? What are the practical implications for business no. individuals and investment firms? All of those things need answering, and we are still a very long way. That's a, that's a really good question, actually. What kind of bodies would need to be built to to facilitate this because I, I, was, I was reading uh, I think something in The Economist where they were talking about we're going to have to set up extra courts or we're going to have to put appointments on certain trade courts their uh, their decisions won't be binding there's a whole lot of things that, that go into facilitating this yeah absolutely I mean at, at the very least we will need a bilateral jurisdiction court um, so we'll, we'll, there will need to be a new court spun up that is essentially EU plus UK yeah, that's that's the way bilateral trade agreements usually work. Um, there is a separate court for the CETA agreement. I think there is an EU Canada um, separate court. Well, EFTA holds that role for EU EEA, mm-hmm. um, and oh, around right. the so because most of the time you'd say actually I don't want you've got two people. It's a bit like business. You're in the world of, uh, of business global law. Frankly, if you've got two uh, dis- two parties who are working a you know, long term agreement together. You don't want a lawyer who represents one of those two yeah. being the one with the deciding vote. Yeah, you need you, you need an independent arbitration uh, of some form, or at least a balanced arbitration mm-hmm. between the two sides. So it's essentially that. So at the bare minimum, we are going to need a, uh, a bilateral uh, court setting up. The UK is currently going through its process of uh, managing its WTO appointments. Uh, so obviously, you know, rewind back to podcast one. We are an independent member of the WTO. We always have been, but we have shared a set of schedules with the EU as part of the common commercial policy. Um, all that's been unpicked now, the quotas particularly, because that's going to, the tariff rate quotas is going to be the really hard bit of that, but that's all being unpicked, so representation to the WTO. Um, representation then on the wider national body, so UNECE, because essentially mm-hmm. these are all the bodies that the EU represents us at currently. So all of those things, the, the UK will need to start getting a bit more hands dirty and involved. So, uh, just think that's right, for every trade agreement... There needs to be some sort of body or some sort of court. There will be something into which you can place place So, so are, are we actually talking about like a physical office in, in London in, in, in London somewhere? Do these things already exist, or because of our membership of the EU, do they exist within the EU rather than the UK? For now, they exist within the EU because the UK doesn't have independent policy um, over, its, over its issues of trade. Um, uh, so, no, essentially, we're representing that. So, does it have to have a physical building? Not necessarily. It depends how much you're mm-hmm. intending on using it. Um, I suspect, but no, it's, it's more. It's a it's a legal body. Uh, essentially, it's a it's a it's a company. It doesn't have to be yeah. physical presence. It's a it's a legal presence. Excellent. Well, uh, in a further development, um, Labour have shelved their plans to run steam trains via cooperatives and have come up with. What? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I thought we'd just taken a sidestep into some kind of parallel. Um, Tell me more. Yeah, I'm, I'm just referring to their nationalisation plans. And I've actually. Oh, um, <laughs> and have um, decided to have a solid stance on Brexit. Do you know what this stance may might look like? Uh, it's rumoured that on Monday next week uh, the Labour Party are going to firm up, firm up its position on at least the customs union. That's that's all I've seen. Yeah. Um, that the plan is that uh, on on Monday they will announce that they are backing us remaining in the or a customs union. Okay. It's you know, time will tell which terminology they use. Right. So does this sort of put Labour now pure uh, more in the Remain camp? It's it sat their stall a bit more clear. Um, I was reading something just before we, we came in to record this now, which someone said actually Labour's policy since the referendum has been to be sort of one or two steps 
softer Brexit than the government's position. Mm. That you don't really say anything in detail, just hint that you want to be which slightly it, to be softer. Which politically is a very, very, very good strategy. Yeah. They, they've milked it really for all it's worth. Um, this kind of would put a marker in the sound. Yeah. That instead of it's that we're just sort of we don't quite like the government's approach and we you know we want a pro jobs Brexit is the phrase we, we constantly hear from uh, from Corbyn and uh, and uh, McDonald whatever that means. Um, apparently we think yeah Monday then they will come out and be a bit firmer. And it say, would certainly put pressure on the Conservatives to yeah. uh, address this a bit more strongly. I think it would, like, it's probably good. It's probably a very good political move. Yeah. I think both for them as a party and of course they've got to watch their Brexit Ireland and this is one of the big reasons. Well, this is so interesting, isn't it? But one of the reasons they've kind of been vague on setting out a position because, um, you know, whilst the majority of Labour members and voters are indeed pro-Remain, a, a, a plurality uh, of their core constituencies mm. are pro-Brexit, and so that, that might leave them some issues in the marginal seats. So I've kind of got two views on this. First is, I think Labour... Well, actually, first is, if you ask anyone on the... On, um, on the streets, who is the Brexit party, who is the Remain party, I think most people would actually think Labour or Remain anyway, even though that isn't the case. Mm. Um, the second thing is, I think it's a sign of the confidence of the Labour Party at the moment that they can come out and come out and say this. I don't think they're that bothered. Oh, no, they are obviously bothered about, about the heartlands, but I think they, they estimate that the Tory party are in such disarray, they can say whatever they want now. I think there's that, and I think there's just an aspect of opportunity for, and I don't mean that in an opportunistic sense, but I mean an opportunity for political leadership in the sense that it is possible to, you know, and good politicians over the years have done this, is you can shape... You yeah. can help to shape public position um, by your stance. I, I just don't see how it ties up, though, with what I perceive to be Jeremy Corbyn's personal view, which, you know, I, uh, which I, I'm going to say right now, I don't know 100% it is his view, but he's always been anti, anti-EU. anti he's, he was, he's not particularly... Um, he wasn't particularly active in the Remain campaign. This softer Brexit doesn't seem to be... Well, it doesn't seem to have his um, fing- fingerprints on it. Yeah, but I think there's always this kind of blurry line in politics between what an individual, in their individual capacity and what in their professional capacity, as it were, you know, think and hold true. You know, the, the number of politicians who, let's be honest, who agree 100% of with their party's position and everything is going to be close to zero. Well, you, know, you, you might agree with broad tracks, there will be bits you totally disagree, but for the party, you know, you let these things go um, and you focus on the broader sort of direction of travel mm. for detail you could of course say exactly the same for Theresa May well interesting who whilst she wasn't active particularly active in the Brexit campaigns we know was on the Remain side um, uh, broadly and all that so she too is leading a party in a different direction to which she personally would have chosen to go but I think that is politics yeah well very interestingly there was a documentary on the BBC about the Cameron years it seems a little bit early to be doing documentaries called the Cameron years but there we are yeah, they only finished two years ago yeah <laughs> and um, they had Jacob Rees-Mogg on and they had somebody else one obviously a Brexiteer one obviously a, um, a Remainer and both of them were completely convinced that David Cameron was on their side. So it kind of tells you what you know what you need to know about good uh, what you need to know about good politicians. There was a Alex referred to it earlier, I think, um, maybe before we start recording. I was down at an event at uh, Manchester Met University earlier this week with uh, Lord Manderson. Oh, uh, speaking, uh, he's the Chancellor at, uh, at MMU. Is he? He is, and also a civil servant who, forgive me, I've name is forgotten, Sir Andrew somebody. 
high up in the Cabinet Office and the European Directorates uh, of, uh, of UK Civil Service for a very long time. Uh, now retired. And one of the things they, um, they spoke about many aspects of the challenges, but he raised, uh, Sir Andrew raised an interesting point about Cameron. And he said Cameron's ability to sway the referendum decision was weakened by the fact that essentially he hadn't spent his previous political career paving the public way for the decision to go his way. Yes, yes. So he campaigned on a Remain side whilst also, you know, trying to talk to Brussels in the six, nine months before the referendum saying, look, you know, we're not happy, we want to do something. He'd never been particularly pro-Remain. No, he'd not been... No one would have ever put Cameron in the box of being a Europhile. Mm. You know, he was he was never a Euro, he was never a full out Eurosceptic in the way that you know a large section of the of the Tory party is. But he was never a Europhile. So he never consistently made the case for what it was he suddenly in the last six months of his premiership needed to get the British public to buy into. Yeah. And that, that was one of his weaker spots. And I think that you know this came about this whole you know hour and a quarter debate really earlier this week that actually this is probably the failing of the UK politics. Since we tried to enter the EU in the 60s, the European community, and finally entered the 70s, is no one's ever really made a solid case either way. Well, because our view has always been in and part of, but separate too. Mm-hmm. Well, know. I mean, the feeling always was, not to rerun all of the campaigning, the feeling always was that if he knew how it would have gone, he might have spent a little bit more time on it than just, than, than just rushing it through. And the other fascinating part that I find is he never said that he would, that he would resign. And the danger is, of course, people would have used it as a vote against the Conservative Party and they'd lost by more. But actually, I, I think that would have been the turning point for a lot of people who voted Leave, particularly Conservatives. Yeah, so it's yeah, a, no, that's interesting, isn't that? Absolutely. Yeah, no, nothing like a bit of a his, um, hi, um, history revision, is there? <laughs> um, I, I just want to throw something else in here about this Customs Union thing from yeah. Labour. Um, I mean, we should, we should mention, first of all, that the, we, we yet to see the full position, but from what I've seen, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, we were speaking before about it's really weird that they would come out in favour of staying in the or a customs union without also coming out to stay in the single market. Mm. Um, and it seems, I do think it's it's a good move by them in terms of opportunity because everyone's talking about the customs union. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it'd be a strange move to come out in favour of the customs union but not in favour of the single market because being in one but not the other doesn't really solve anything. I mean, particularly around the Irish border. Um, yeah. Now, you mentioned this before the podcast... I mean, what issues does it does it leave to be answered other, uh, other than the Irish border? Or is that or is that the big one? Well, the, the customs union is broadly it's it's mostly about tariffs. It's mostly about the common external tariff. In, in terms of the non tariff bar, non tariff barriers and borders, that's mostly handled by the single market. Yeah, I think that's, that's, I think that's a very good way of putting it. The only thing I was going to chip in really is you, you've you've covered it. Yeah, really, it's it's the common external tariff and the way that applies. So you've two bits. You've common external tariff for me. And you've also the fact that being within a customs union removes all of the rules and origin issues, which yes. is tariff related, yes. um, within that market. But staying in the customs union only solves those. Yeah. It, it literally does absolutely nothing else. Um, it doesn't handle you know your international issues. No. Um, it doesn't handle mm-hmm. inspection. You know the customs union does not get rid of any border inspections in and of itself. And the example we always use. Customs Union was initially born in the Treaty of Cartland was in the 1960s, but border checks existed across every mainland European border until the creation of the single market uh, on the Maastricht Treaty in 1910. It's that that got rid of border checks. Yeah, so it's, it's going to be interesting to see the reaction to whatever they do announce. 
But um, something else which I've seen today, the trade bill's currently going through uh, the Commons. It is. Um, and a amendment has been shelved, I think, by Chucker. Mm-hmm. Um, and supported by Salbury and a bunch of others. Yeah, the, apparently quite a lot of people are, are willing to put their name next to this to uh, an amendment which would make us jo- remain in a customs union of some kind, mm-hmm. um, which would enshrine that into the uh, into the treat- into the um, bill itself. Um, and the interesting one for me is if Labour's position swings to being pro customs union on Monday, and Labour then becomes in favour of this amendment that couple that up with the, the Tories who are also in favour of the customs union and majority, potentially yeah. there's a massive problem um, for the government well so this is interesting because I heard it from like the other way round which is there's 50 Labour MPs who really do not like the way that the Labour government are travelling uh, and would be happy to band together with the likes of Subri and mm. uh, and um, and uh, and tracker, but I've not heard it the other way with Remain supporting Conservatives going over to Labour. In fact, I can't see it, I can't see it for, a mil- for a million years. But I, I definitely think there is some mileage in the idea of some sort of centre ground. I don't think party, but I think a grouping is de- very much on the cards. I, I think so. I think that the this is one of the most interesting times of the House, of course. I think the government's not got a majority anyway. Mm. It's reliant on the DUP, who essentially have no parliament in which to sit in their local territory because Stormont's in complete suspension. Um, the Conservative Party is following currently, I mean, essentially both parties are notionally following a Brexit concept, albeit in different flavours. Tory Party slightly harder, Labour Party rather softer. But essentially, you've the Tories haven't got a majority for hard Brexit. On their back benches. No, Labour haven't have neither got a majority uh, of Remain or Soft, mm-hmm. and so it's all going to hang on who groups with who. Well, um, and we... I think there are some areas this customs union bit, the concept of customs lowercase C, union lowercase U, and their general application is one where I think the government is going is to come unstuck because mm-hmm. there's n- there is no majority for walking away. Mm-hmm. So, just on that, uh, I'm pretty sure no one... Well, you might know the answer, I don't know. But there must be rules regarding what MPs can and cannot do with opposition parties and who they can, what organisations they can join, or, can join or can't join. For instance, you can't be a dual member of two, polit- two political parties. Or at least I don't think... I'm pretty no, sure no, you can't. No, no, and most political parties have clauses in that. Yeah. If, you jo- if you seem to be actively supporting... Uh, you know, membership, financial, whatever, in the party, then you're, you know, you're automatically out. No, in, in, within the house itself, um, because of the, you know, the freedom of the democratic process, the only thing that matters is the whips process. Essentially, so if you vote with the opposition, but the there opposition will be party consequences for that, I would imagine. Particularly not, on the late, well, not, not just on not just the voting uh, against. No, so there's no formal. You know, you wouldn't see an MP vote removed from a political party for voting against that party's position. That's unbelievably mm. harsh. Because that's taking away the freedom of MPs to, to represent their constituents. And you have rebellions against party whips all the time. But Jeremy Corbyn being one of the single biggest <laughs> yeah. uh, examples of that, and not only is he still there, he's now. But presumably, uh, Chuck, a, a joint leader with Subri, with some centrist movement, would cause some um, very real headaches and very real issues within their within their parties and and their, and their rule books. I mean, that just has to be. I but think, I don't. I don't know. No, I mean, I think, I think in any other time on any other topic, probably, 
Yeah. At that scale, you know, it was, you know, so rebellions against whips are normal, that's fine. Um, that's always been the case, and that's why you always need a sizable majority, because not everyone in your party is going to get carried with every vote. Mm. Um, but Brexit just changes all the rules. Yeah, it's, lots of people seem to be talking about this idea of a new centrist party. Um, but it only works for me in the context of Brexit. I mean, it, it's understandable that people like Sabri and Trucker would team up on this. But then, you know, they might be able to agree on what type of Brexit they want, but they're not going to be able to agree on everything else, are they? And I can't no. believe they'll even be able to agree on the details. But I mean, I imagine... Yeah. Or your big picture spread, yeah. But. Yeah, but I imagine that they... I imagine that, for instance, Trucker and Subri believe... Uh, and they'll have a lot more common beliefs than, say, Trucker and Corbyn. Yes, they I, mean, I, think yeah. I, think, yeah, yeah. I think you're probably right, um, and I think that's the interesting, you know, the the Blairite wing of the Tories and the Cameronite, sorry, the Blairite yeah. wing of Labour and the Cameronite wing of the Tories have not a great deal. But certainly, socially, um, they're almost like, they're almost identically, uh, they're almost identical. E- economically, they've got they've got they've got some issues. I don't think you want the complaints you know, that some of the some Tory party members threw against Cameron in you know, when he lost the 2010 election and he scraped, got a majority, but scraped the 2015. Is fundamentally he was a leader of the Tory party who was designed and set up to fight Blair. Yeah. And actually, in a post-Blair world, the Cameronite system didn't quite make any. Didn't quite make any political sense. It makes more um, sense than the, than the than the Theresa May system, uh, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, we digress. Uh, some more Brexit chat, I think. Um, now, you did uh, refer to an article that you read uh, earlier on this week, coming up Belgium of all places. Uh, yeah, it's now, the news. Tell tell me about what um, Belgium thinks, or what um, a Belgian newspaper thinks. Well, a, all I know is a Belgian newspaper thinks um, that there, there's some rumours flying around that Belgium is trying to push a TTIP-style positioning no. for the EU in looking at its UK relations. Why, why would Belgium... OK, so a few things are. Why would Belgium want that? There are many questions. Go on. Um, <laughs> Not many answers. But there are many <laughs> yeah. um, is it fair... I mean, are a lot of European countries pushing for uh, this sort uh, this sort of solution outside of the official e- e- EU channels? But isn't the whole idea that the EU should remain united and have one voice? So this I mean, is quite damaging. That's well, it, I mean, of course, it's fundamentally depends who it's come from, and that we don't that we don't know. I mean, I think there's been there has been for a long time rumblings around the press that you know Germany actually doesn't want to go too hard and doesn't want to punish Britain too much. France says, take the chance to screw us over while we can, we'll never have a better one, because that is basically you, the story of 500 years. Of yeah, you'd be disappointed if they didn't say that. Yeah, exactly, that, and you know, that's what neighbours do. Um, and other countries saying, actually, we should be being very harsh on us, or we should be looking for a much closer relationship. So I don't think that's probably normal, because, of course, within the EU, there's 27 different sets of incentives, mm. you know, different reasons for why you want to be close or not, and the EU centrally, you know, the European Union Commission and its council will have its own view on where it sees the EU and its relationship, you know, regardless of the constituent member states. So of course there's all of that pulling around, in the same way there is within the UK Parliament. So, so it represents a lot of different people and there's a lot of different positions. So, so can you boil down the many hundreds of hours, uh, many hundreds of man hours put into designing TTIP into a coherent paragraph about what it actually is and then how it would be different to 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 to, to TTIP, the new arrangement offered by Belgium or that Belgium wants? <laughs> well, the, the good, good luck. Yeah, I just the, the quick answer to that is is without a doubt no, no, I can't. <laughs> um, 
but we'll see if we can do um, a little bit as I said I search uh, frantically on my phone my, my understanding kick, kick off. my understanding <laughs> of I, I don't know if this is just a bit of a red herring in, to, to be honest uh, my understanding of it is that TTIP is not massively different to CETA and I, I, I don't know but I assume that Canada and the USA are pretty much aligned on these things I don't, I don't know what the can, 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 so, uh, Canada-USA border is like. I've got a feeling I'm going to have one of those um, moments now. Do you know, the, who's the Tory MP that said that there's no border checks between the... Is it Steve Bate? Oh, this is Marcus, this is Marcus Fish, right? Yes, and he said... Uh, oh, this, yeah, is, this, yeah, is last, yeah, yeah, this is last week, yeah, yeah, yeah I remember yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Feeling, I've got a feeling this is going to be my, uh, my similar moment now, but I'm pretty sure it's harder for Canada to do business within Canada, Canadian states than, than it is with the US. So, oh, right. so they might be aligned, but Canada's got yeah, plenty of trade issues. I don't itself. think they're fully aligned. I think, I, yeah, uh, yeah, we spoke about this last last week. Yeah, didn't we? there, there there is infrastructure at the border, um, but I think my understanding is that TTIP and CETA are not miles apart, um, and I almost think it's perhaps a bit of a red herring to mention TTIP. Um, you know, we've spoken before about the two broad options are Norway-ish and Canada-ish. Mm. And the reason why we say that those two things are separate toolboxes is that basically the two regulatory superpowers in the world are the EU and the USA. And post-Brexit, we're going to have to choose to align ourselves with one of them. Um, yeah. And it, that's basically what it boils down to. So whether, whether, the, whether, the, whether the final agreement is more like TTIP or more like CETA is... It's kind of Neither by the by, yeah. No. And, and of course, the fact that those are your two big regulatory bodies is basically why TTIP didn't work. Well, just no one could get it through. Is you've got the two biggest yeah. regulatory agencies, both of whom view the regulatory world from totally different ends. It's not like you're trying to bring two relatively close mm. objectives together. Um, they're very different. So I've, I've now sort of. Uh, found the links that I saw earlier on all of this. I'll talk in a little bit more detail. So the report says, according to internal Belgian papers, um, EU states are looking into offering a TTIP-style deal rather than a CETA-style one. Now, I think the one thing we've got to get here is style. Because lots of people have said, well, we've said, look, we, it's going to be something like CETA. It's going to be something like Norway. People have gone, oh, it's one of those. It won't be bespoke. You know, it will be bespoke. Yes. It will be a bespoke deal. The question is, does it look broadly like CETA, which is essentially zero off on the tariffs, a bit of mutual recognition, and you're done? Or does it look like the EEA, which is a, which is a presumption of continued regulatory alignment and common enforcement and includes free, and includes free motor services and, and very little barriers to services? which the one does. Two totally different boxes. Um, it continues, Michel Barnier has spoken about the EU offering its most ambitious FTA approach, but when he says this, he only ever really wants to talk about Canada. This is partly because TTIP was going to include some fairly cutting-edge stuff on financial services, and he was pushing hard, that's um, mm. Barnier, hard for that at the time. But it can also be, don't forget, TTIP attracted a colossal amount of public opposition now, across the EU. Okay, but, so... But, so did CETA. Don't forget, the, let's cast our mind back. The Wallonian regional <laughs> government was close uh, to getting rid of CETA. One of my favourite stories, that. Yeah, less well known, which I'm always amazed was never in the press. The Germans, have, of course, have just managed to form a coalition government yeah. in the last week or so after the elections in October. When they were attempting to form the first coalition, which eventually fell through in December, uh, with, uh, I can't remember which party it was in Germany now, that party's demand was, we will support you in government if you kill CETA. Really? And the German government was happy to do that. So, wow. Yeah, so CETA, yeah, CETA is, is agreed but not uh, ratified. Was that on the... Um... It, is, it has not yet gone through all the national parliaments. It's been signed by 
the it Canadian be. It's been signed by the European Commission, but it's not yet gone through all the member states. No. So it's not fully enforced. When you say the coalition, that was not the Christian Democrats of, Ang- of Angela Merkel. That, that was Angela Merkel and whichever party she was. Martin, whatever is it. Who were former party with. So, we continue. Anyway, it's a little bit of a diversion on that route. Anyway, CETA, so it's like all the others EU's deal, but it's built on the principle of conformity. Now, here we get into a couple of mm. important words. What does conformity here. mean? Basically, this means authorities in Canada or the EU can approve goods and services for import and export. This is the concept of conformity. We've talked a little bit about conformity before and what that might look like outside the supermarket. This avoids double testing of products. So it's testing, yeah. A product made in Canada is certified under conformity to come into the EU. But that's all it does. Yeah. All it does is say the body over in Ziva is certified to check that it's okay for the EU market. There's no automatic check that that body is still doing what it should be doing, and therefore there will still be periodic inspections at the border post to make sure that that's all there. That's the concept of conformity. TTIP, however, is envisaged to be based on the idea of equivalence. So, much more ambitious as it entails both parties agreeing that whilst their legislation may be worded differently, it is in all practical terms equal in outcome. Yeah, so regardless of how they get it mm. there, they still get it there. Yeah, so if where equivalence is agreed, a product approved by one country is automatically legal to be sold in another. It reduces the need for conformity assessments, paperwork and border checks. And the last difference, really, TTIP is also envisaged to be a flexible living agreement, constantly tinkered around with and upgraded, rather than deals like CETA, which are one-off and ossified and would need new negotiating rounds. Ah. Uh, so we finish. However, there are some fairly significant caveats. Oh. Firstly, trade wonks. Congrats, sorry, I should give great thanks to Nick Gutteridge here on Twitter, who's, who's, uh, who's very good for what I'm reading to you. Uh, firstly, trade wonks say that whilst the dream was for TTIP to be largely based on equivalence, actually it just hit a brick wall of reality and it wasn't achievable. Uh, it um, wasn't achievable because the outcome wasn't it's equivalent. It's just too hard. It's just too hard about how you get over those. Secondly, equivalence is nowhere near as good as passporting rights, uh, not just for financial services within the EU. The EU Parliament states, quite often equivalence concerns more technical matters but does not significantly alter third country access terms. So it goes on a bit more, but that's essentially it. it yeah, I'll finish off with just restating Alex. We, we kind of build on something from a few podcasts ago. We talked about imagining a long line of different sorts of trade agreements with WTO terms on your far left mm-hmm. and European Union membership on the far right and what you haven't got is an equal spread along that line from WTO to free standard free trade deal to CETA to TTIP to single market to EEA what you've got is all of those things apart from the EU are bunched at the left hand end yeah it's mm-hmm. a, WTO, WTO to CETA is, there's very very little difference there's very little difference going CETA to TTIP there's quite a big move if you then go to EEA but actually EEA is still a long way from a full blown single market now just um, before we move on from this TTIP remind me what, what in the end did kill T- TTIP was it on the European side it was it was yeah. massive political disagreement in uh, across actually most EU nations uh, and really from the people it was a, it was a, a, a public uproar as much as... Because I don't remember the public uproar in the UK. Oh, a huge amount. So particularly around um, access to health services in the UK, being opened up to uh, the US market. I, yeah. Particularly I, around some of the rights there, I mean, there, there was private companies to sue governments. Yes, that, I, I do remember that bit. Um, okay, well, do you know what? Unless either of you guys have got something else to add, we've been going for four... For 41 minutes, uh, I was going to go into open-ended tra- uh, the open-ended transition, but actually, if we do, we might end up with an open-ended podcast. 
<laughs> we, could, well, we could pick that up next week because actually we should know more once we've heard from Theresa May. Unless Alex, oh, anything no. else? No. Oh, perfect. Actually, Alex is just writing down, please finish, basically. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> not, not because we're bored of all of you, but because we've got something else to do. Excellent. <laughs> right, well, with that, we shall leave you there, and we'll see you, ne- see you next week. Goodbye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 